0: you're listening to on human rights where we interview experts from around the world on the most important issues and trends in the fields of human rights and humanitarian law we're broadcasting from the rao wallenberg institute of human rights and humanitarian law in lund sweden i'm gabriel stein today we're joined by ted picone He's a senior fellow from the Project on International Order and Strategy and Latin America Initiative in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. He also served eight years as a senior foreign policy advisor in the Clinton administration. Ted, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's very popular these days to attack the liberal world order and the UN. What's happening? Can it be saved?
1: The international liberal order is facing a major stress test. I mean, you have to remember the United Nations is a group of states. It's a group of governments. So it's driven by what's in the interest of those very many and diverse states from around the world. And for decades now, it's been a place where and the only global forum where these interests are negotiated and we find some kind of common ground. And in fact, if you look at the history of U.N. activities. You know, there's a lot that happens under the radar that people don't appreciate, they take for granted, but everything from the way we fly, international civil aviation rules, to the air that we breathe, and the international treaties around protecting the ozone on pollutants, I mean, this is where international cooperation happens and matters to our daily lives. So in that Sense, the UN is still alive and well and will always play, I think, that important role. Where it's been so challenging is finding responses to the violence that is emerging, particularly after the Cold War ended, where various um, tribal, ethnic, local conflicts have spilled over to become major uh, refugee crises and other kinds of humanitarian crises. And there, there's a, it's been very difficult to reach consensus on how the UN, how the international community should intervene, whether it's through humanitarian assistance or sanctions or actual use of armed force. And I would say that in the high period of the mid-2000s and 2005, where you had a UN World Summit, all the world's leaders agreed on some fundamental principles, including the principle of responsibility to protect protect civilians when nations are unable to be responsible sovereigns of their territories and demand some kind of international response. That doctrine was employed to intervene in Libya when Gaddafi was threatening really uh, severe attacks against opposition forces there. And the result was uh, mixed. I mean... Libya did get rid of Gaddafi, uh, but it left a terrible mess in its wake because the international community did not sustain its involvement, number one. And number two, the way it used force as a, um, critics say, tool for regime change really set off alarm bells for so many countries. They're like, we don't want to use the UN for regime change. That's not our intention. And so there was a major pullback on the responsibility to protect, and the victims are the people of Syria, uh, where the United Nations and the Security Council time and again has been unable to reach consensus on what to do about Syria. And what do we see? We see millions of Syrians uh, fleeing the country, coming to Europe, uh, and you know, Most of them, by the way, are not in Europe. They're in Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan, which are already reeling from other refugee populations. So this has caused a major crisis, and it's a real sign of failure of the UN uh, system. And again, individual member states, including Russia, that have blocked again and again any effort to uh, address that tragedy.
0: You're talking about how the UN has done all of these amazing things, but
1: your average person doesn't see that. So what what can be done? So the UN, we have to remember, um, is often used as a scapegoat for... Uh, Other issues. And again, come back to the basics. It's a club of member states. It's up to the political will of each country. Now, the five most powerful countries at the UN um, have an important responsibility to make it work. And as I mentioned, Russia has interfered over and over again with support from China on the Syria problem. The United States, under President Trump, you know, this was not a campaign issue, by the way, at all. So we can't say that he has any mandate to do anything regarding the U.N. However, it fits with his America First philosophy that, you know, U.N. is is just not important to our ability to, uh, if, if in fact, it just gets in the way of our desire to bring jobs back, to um, stop having to save all these other countries from their own problems. We have our own problems at home, et cetera. That is a powerful idea, and for people who were left behind by globalization, there is an appeal to it. But it's very short-sighted. We need a much more long-term vision of international peace and security. Our economy is so interwoven, U.S. economy with, and others, with what goes on around the world. And so we need an international environment where there's some stability, where there's some protection of human rights and the rule of law, and open trading systems so that our economies can actually work together. And we cannot build walls and expect that we will have some kind of economic growth or, or even peace. History teaches us that very well. So the scapegoat problem is a real one, uh, but it's a short-term political problem. And as we've seen in other U.S. administrations, uh, it doesn't take long for the leadership to realize that they need to invest in in the U.N. Mm. So then what are the new ideas? Uh, Where are we headed? How do we change course? I think we're in a moment where uh, we can't see what the new ideas are, but there is uh, a sense of rethinking that takes us back to some basic principles of, you know, why do we have the UN? Uh, why do we need to invest in protecting human beings from violence or humanitarian emergencies? Because it does affect us back back at home. Uh, so... I think for starters, we need to go back and remember why we <laughs> created, remember our own history of 20th century wars and violence and genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now for a lot of younger people, they didn't live through that, and it's harder for them to imagine what that looks like. Uh, but you can see from a historical point of view, certain trend lines that are very worrisome. There's some really dark clouds on the horizon. Uh, Now, uh, underneath that, there is a positive story to say. I mean, there are millions and millions of people who no longer live in poverty, who are living longer, who have more education than they used to have, who have better drinking water, et cetera. Have we solved those basic problems? No. But progress has been made, and I would argue that that has been a function of both international cooperation, but also a a better appreciation by some uh, governments developing countries that they need to invest more in their own development. Uh, and, And by participating in globalization, they have done that. We need to now bring these institutions back to the people. We need to help them understand why it makes a difference in their lives. I, I think it's a heavy lift because it feels so remote and it's easy to blame Brussels or Washington or New York for these problems. So I think there needs to be more work done at the local level, at the community level. There needs to be a ton more work done on civic education, Uh, human rights education at the school level. And I know in the United States, we're way behind on that. It's
0: still hard for me to imagine how the average person is going to learn about the successes of the UN. I mean, people can be convinced to vote for Barack Obama or Donald Trump or buy a certain smartphone, but this is a tougher sell. What about the communication and marketing perspective? You don't hear much about that.
1: No, you don't. And, And I think, you know, the, the negative way of looking at this is, well, it's going to take a crisis before people can really appreciate. You know, that's often the way things work. Uh, so do we need another world war in order for people to understand why we have these institutions that we built up over the last 70 years so that we have negotiations and compromise instead of conflict and wars? Um, it might require that. I hope not. But uh, that would be a true failure of the international system if it, if it comes to that. Um, But sometimes these are abstract concepts that are hard to translate into everyone's daily lives. And when they're just trying to get by and they read the newspaper and they just see, like, conflict all over the place. Well, why is the UN not solving that conflict? You know, what's going on there? I, I would, you know, this is a mixed story, but Syria, again, if you recall chemical weapons this last incident is not the first time chemical weapons has been, have been used. What happened? The UN stepped in through an international treaty arrangement to remove what we thought was you know 98% of the chemical weapons um, which was considered a success of the international system. Um, but turns out that Assad was either hiding some or creating new chemical weapons. Now for if I'm a um, American citizen and my uncle or my nephew or my cousin is in the US military who's deployed into that region I'm going to worry about him being a subject of chemical weapons So yeah, it matters that chemical weapons are controlled. This is a bright, it should be a very bright line in international law and cooperation and now it's a matter of enforcement and that's why frankly I thought at one level President Trump did the right thing in responding to these latest use of chemical weapons in Syria. Um, It should have been done through the UN. Russia blocked it. So he took action on his own, which is not a good thing for the respect for international law side of it. But on the other hand, it was a good thing in responding to this use of illegal chemical weapons. So, you know, this is highly imperfect. But I think most Americans would understand that, hey, we've got to get control of these chemical weapons. No one wants chemical weapons in the world.
0: I'm curious what impact you think the America First doctrine of uh, the current administration in the United States uh, is having on the global efforts to promote and protect human rights.
1: I think it has a highly negative impact, and we saw it last week when Secretary of State Tillerson gave a speech at the State Department in which he tried to explain what this means in foreign policy terms. And he was quite clear in saying that, look, first of all, it means that we have to protect our economic and national security interests. And yes, we have our values and they're fundamental and they're enduring, but you know, sometimes they're obstacles to getting our interests satisfied. And, you know, government leaders complain to us all the time. We're too demanding and we need to give them more time. So, yeah, values matter, but we've got to protect our other interests first. To me, that's a complete reversal of what we've learned from history and that when we disregard not even the values, but the importance to peace and security that human rights offers, then we're really on the wrong path. And I'm I'm very concerned that uh, this attitude, if it becomes policy, really, in the United States, will then spread, and I think it's already happening, to other parts of the world where you have authoritarian leaders to say, well, look at the United States. They're saying it's America first. Well, it's Egypt first. It's Philippines first. It's Russia first. And there you just have a total competition, free for all, for each country's parochial interests and inevitable conflict. It's just not the way the world's gonna work if we want to have any kind of uh, peace and security. So to me, it's, it's the most troubling aspect. Um, Senator John McCain who's you know, noted war hero, has just written in response to this speech a very powerful argument in the New York Times uh, making the case for why human rights are essential to our national security. Um, and I, I encourage your listeners to read it.
0: It seems to me that Secretary of State Tillerson is saying economic interests and national security are more important than human rights.
1: Yeah, and they also interpret it as border security, you know, preventing terrorism. And we need to build walls and um, make sure that no harm is ever brought to any American, which is a completely unrealistic standard, and we have to accept that if we want to have open democratic societies, there is a certain vulnerability and risk that we face in a world in which that's so integrated, so globalized, and we're going to have to accept those risks. There's no such thing as a zero risk-free environment, and so that's number one. Uh, That's a trade-off we have to accept. And uh, unless, you know, if you want to live in an authoritarian state, uh, go move to China and see how you think how it goes there. You might have some basic um, economic uh, rights, but you won't have freedom. And you may not have much clean air to breathe either in Beijing. But those are, uh, I think most people would choose freedom over that kind of living in a cage. Uh, So those are fundamental choices that uh, are in front of us right now. And the kind of short-termism that they're calling patriotism is, I think, backwards. And it's just, if you lived in a neighborhood in which it's nothing but uh, everyone out for themselves, who, who, who takes care of the streets? Who builds the schools? Who manages the traffic lights? It's that take that principle and put it up on the on the international level. That's what we're talking about.
0: You uh, back in 2016 wrote a book about five rising democracies. Uh, You uh, published it in 2016. So that means you were working on it for years and things have rapidly changed since then. But in that book, you had some practical recommendations for building a north south consensus on human rights and democracy. Can you talk about that a bit?
1: The challenge I find is that we have a declining West, as we're talking about the United States. Europe has its own challenges. You have a rising authoritarians like Russia and China. And then you have these swing states, these middle power democracies that have made tremendous progress in their own transitions to more open societies. Um, yet their foreign policies do not reflect those uh, same principles. They have taken a more of a national interest, narrow national interest approach in their foreign policies. And so the question I've wrestled with is countries like Indonesia, India, Brazil, South Africa, are they gonna fill the vacuum of this international liberal order that's being um, created by, say, people like Trump, uh, or or not, you know? and. And so I found that they took very mixed positions on these issues, partly because of their own uh, national histories. But uh, there was some common ground that could be created with the North, um, particularly on issues of economic and social rights, which are fundamental uh, for developing countries that are really facing severe poverty and trying to get their citizens up to a certain minimum standard of living. Um, there are issues of corruption that are massive in some of these countries, and oh, by the way, there's plenty of corruption in the north. We just don't always call it that. It's in the United States. It's much of it is legalized corruption, and we have to face up to that issue as, as well. Um, issues like education for girls and women, you know, is proven to be a multiplier positive when it comes to family incomes, family security, uh, uh, human rights across the board. We Im- should invest a lot more into uh, that issue as well. Um, business and human rights. You mentioned business before. I think that's another area where the rise of the private sector around the world, including you know these big multinational companies in India uh, or Brazil. Uh, they need to be brought into the corporate social responsibility kind of uh, thinking so that people understand their bottom line, their reputation as uh, positive forces uh, matters to their bottom line. And there is a lot of good work going on in that field, but we need to do much more. Uh, So those are just some examples of where I think there can be Uh, Some common ground. We have to remember there's some very uh, fundamental issues around freedom of information and uh, free internet uh, that are critical to our ability to actually exercise our rights. And we see more and more countries creating um, uh, firewalls, uh, censorship, internet shutdowns, surveillance mechanisms, democracies and non-democracies, and that is a real danger as well.
0: There was an article in The Economist recently comparing big data to big oil uh, and and arguing that maybe big data like Facebook and google Amazon that it needs to be broken up that they have a monopoly. Things have changed so fundamentally when it comes to data and information, the internet um, in the past five years. Are these institutions ready for that are no prepared for that?
1: we are in completely uncharted territory, and the technology is moving so quickly. And it's driven by you know Moore's law, where there's this r- natural rhythm of, of, of acceleration. But the market uh, forces that are driving these companies to constantly create new products that will you know make our lives easier and more convenient, but in fact are collecting data about our personal lives and then converting that into all kinds of new products. Um, it, it, it leads inevitably to a major clash with some very fundamental human rights principles of right to privacy, freedom of expression. And I think the lawyers, the regulators, the governments are way behind the curve in trying to catch up to this phenomenon. And it's got to slow down. You know, some, every country needs to say, wait a second, what kind of world do we want to live in here? And, and slow things down. I think Europe is further ahead because they have a higher concern for privacy than in the United States. Um, and I am very worried that we're never going to actually catch up to this phenomenon until maybe people appreciate just what an invasion it is of their personal lives and care about it. Going forward, what are the
0: key areas you're going to be working with? Where do you see uh, the Brookings Institution making a dent in the universe going forward?
1: Well, we're a public policy think tank, so we are in the business of um, producing uh, research that's relevant to policymakers. So that's a good question you ask. Uh, what what difference does it make? I think in the uh, we're facing a stress test of our democracies right now, and uh, we need to again go back to basic principles and identify uh, what is it that's driving this kind of uh, erosion of our basic democratic principles and analyze that call it and see what can be done to uh, reverse course Uh, so that's the principal thing i think it's more of a transatlantic discussion that needs to happen because um, looking at other trends in the world and the way it's going if the anchor from my point of view, is not strong, then, you know, we're likely to face more conflict in in the world. Um, I think, in addition, holding on to the international liberal order, uh, including the human rights components, uh, will be critical. And there again, it's going to require other states to step up and carry some of the burden uh, because the United States, under the current leadership, uh, is losing interest. And I think that could be quite damaging. So certainly trying to influence other forces, including in the U.S. Congress, who do care about U.S. leadership on these issues and making sure they understand the consequences of U.S. Um, retreat.
0: We, we just have time for one more question. Uh, I really wanted to ask you about your time in the, the Clinton uh, administration. I mean, looking back, uh, could you ever have imagined that you would be talking about these things that you have to talk about today, going back to the basics, like you've mentioned here a few times? Didn't we think we were past all of this?
1: You know, the amazing uh, moment of time in the 90s was end of Cold War and some people have said history was allowed to return, and these um, countries began moving toward this much more progressive, liberal, open system of governance and economics. And I thought that was tremendously positive, and I think it ultimately leads to more more peace. Integration and trade, et cetera, leads to more, more peace because people are more— there's interdependence, and the cost of going to war increases. So in human rights, basic terms, you know— Less war is good for human rights. And so um, here we are. Now, I think the prospect of big interstate wars is still relatively remote, but it's heating up. Instead, we have all these intrastate conflicts, and then you have the rise of transnational terrorism. I think that is a much harder problem to solve, and I did not anticipate that we'd be in this situation. And the overreaction to these kinds of terrorism uh, is is also part of the problem, uh, because as I said, there's no such thing as a zero-risk uh, world, and we have to put it in perspective. I mean. Thousands more people die every year from car accidents, from gun violence, from suicide than in a terrorist attack. I mean, we have to, if we really value human life, well, let's talk about valuing the human lives that are lost through alcoholism and opioid abuse and on and on. So I would say um, it's a tough place we're in right now, but you've got to put things in a historical perspective and let's prevent the worst from happening by returning to some of the basic principles.
0: Ted Picone is a senior fellow with the Project on International Order and Strategy and Latin America Initiative in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings Institution in Washington D.C. Ted, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. on Human Rights is brought to you by the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more interviewing of experts from around the world on the latest issues affecting human rights and humanitarian law.